Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. Have you guys ever uh, noticed, and this is kind of a rhetorical question, but you can interact with me if you want to, but have you ever noticed how um, our view of something um, tends to cause us to act in a specific way? Let me give you an example. If our view is that money will bring joy, then we will spend all of our time trying to figure out how to get as much money as possible or to have the money to do what we believe will bring joy, if that's savings or spending or whatever it is, we'll, we'll spend our life kind of focused on doing that. So when we, when we have a view of something, it can affect the way that you and I operate about day in and day out things. And if we believe ultimately that this world is fairly good, then um, we will interact with the world as if it is fairly good. Or if we have the belief that, you know what, you can just be kind and, and do a good job and, and don't be a jerk and don't murder someone and like things will be okay, then, then we'll live our life operating just trying to avoid those things. The, the problem with that is, is that that's actually not the way that the scriptures define the world. And I think if we look into the text today, my hope is as we dig into it, we'll see that, that our view of the world will change hopefully the way that we interact with the world. Uh, last week, Dr. Voorhees kind of took a big chunk, excellently covered the, you know, chapter, verse 5 all the way to the end in 16 to kind of give us an understanding of what that looks like while combating fear with these disciples being so scared of moving forward without Jesus. And so I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. This week, we kind of did a two-part on this, him and I, and this week we're just going to focus in specifically on the Holy Spirit. This isn't a new subject. We've talked about the Holy Spirit already in this text in, in the Gospel of John. In fact, John 14, I would encourage you to go back to listen to it, but we talked about this word that's used here for helper is actually a, 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 a kind of transliterated Greek word meaning paraclete. Like it has a number of meanings, but ultimately means one called alongside. We, we, we talked then about how um, the words can be translated helper, comforter, counselor, exhorter, intercessor, encourager, advocate, or attorney. But we also um, understood in chapter 14, and we see it again here, is that it is extremely important for us to understand a Greek word that is used. When it says another, it's, there's, there's a Greek word that talks about another of the same kind and another of different kind. And this is another of the exact same kind. So this is the Holy Spirit coming in as God, working in the same way that Jesus did, but now in place of him. And so this is, this is important for us to understand that the Holy Spirit is not, not, not underneath, not, not like less than he is fully God. He's of the same kind as Jesus in this way. He's an advocate for us. And through the, the last kind of 13 to, to 16-ish, 17, as we finish out here getting into 17, it's this last discord that Jesus has where he's teaching his disciples before he leaves the upper room, ultimately to head to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so this is a really important kind of monologue speech that Jesus is giving his disciples. And he chooses very carefully, because he is God, on how to encourage them at the same time as helping us years later to be encouraged in this. We establish in chapter 14 
that the Holy Spirit has many functions, and we will not by any means be exhausting what needs to be talked about when it comes to the Holy Spirit today. We also talked about the Holy Spirit when we went through 1 Corinthians. You can go back and listen there, but we established in chapter 14 that the, the things that the text showed us is that He dwells in us, that the Holy Spirit will dwell in those who have given or subjected their, or submitted their life into the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We see that in Ezekiel of removing a heart of stone and bringing in a heart of flesh. We, we see that the Holy Spirit will indwell in us. He will be with us and He will dwell in us. He teaches us about Jesus and helps us to remember. We saw that in 14 as well. And that ultimately, He is the one that gives us a peace that removes fear. We also see in Corinthians and Romans and Ephesians that He gives us spiritual gifts. And so the Holy Spirit is incredibly active all throughout Scripture. But we see that He has a, a, a very mighty role that Jesus is, is, is coming in to con- encourage His disciples in this moment for them to go in place of him. And so in verse 7 of, of 16 here, he says, he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. So he says, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, despite all of that, I tell you the truth. And it's not that Jesus needs to tell the truth because he hasn't been before. It's a statement in, in Greek that would make it like, pay attention, this is really important, okay? He's saying, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Uh, The thought here is not that Jesus and the Holy Spirit somehow can't simultaneously work at the same time. That's not what he's talking about here. Jesus is ultimately looking to the fact that he is going to the cross, the the moment of his glorification, and that this is... Um, that th- this is kind of like eschatological or end time worthy, meaning like the, the, the kingdom that we find ourselves in where it's come, but it's not entirely there yet. This is the time that happens. There are so many biblical promises that the spirit will characterize the age of the kingdom of God, that it breeds anticipation. But, but for this saving reign of God cannot be fully inaugurated until Jesus has died, risen from the dead, and been exalted to his Father's right hand and returned to his place of glory before he came. So what Jesus is saying, look, it's, it's better that I go because when I go, I've now secured a way for you to be in the throne room of God through my sacrifice. And it's better that I go because now it's not just me walking in the flesh with you. Now the Holy Spirit, who is a person, will be with you and dwelling in you and able to move a lot greater way. One scholar says it this way, the Lamb of God would have to die before the new era could come. In the new era of the resurrection, Jesus would breathe on them as God breathed on Adam in creation, Genesis 2, 7. And the spirit era would begin when, John, when Jesus breathes on them. We see that out of John 20, 22. So Jesus is trying to encourage the disciples and says, look, the Holy Spirit's coming. And he's already been talking about this, the, the paraclete and this, this Holy Spirit. And they've been, they've been hearing these things, but they're struggling. And, and in 14, his promise was, hey, he'll help you remember all that I said and did. And here he says he has another role that he's going to be playing. And he says in verse 8 that, that and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, the Greek of these four verses, uh, kind of 8 through 11 here, is really compressed and very difficult to understand. Uh, specifically, the first word is this word, convict. Scholars are all over the world, on, are all over on this. They are all over. They, um, they are all over the world, by the way. Um, 
They're all over in their definition of what this means. Specifically, what we're trying to understand is the, the words of, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And, is it, and it's all based on this, this verb, convict, that's used here. Is he, how is he convicting of these three things? And, and what specifically is he convicting of? Is it, is it a small thing or is it a grand scale of things? But ultimately, this word, kind of in classical Greek, means putting to shame, treating with contempt, cross-examining, accusing, bringing to the test, proving, refuting. It has all kinds of different things. But in a Greek most relevant to this period, the verb most often meant to expose or to convince or to convict. Now, if I say he's calling, he's here to convince you of something, well, that changes how we define those three words. If I say he's here to, to convict you of something, then that changes it as well. To expose, that changes how this is supposed to play out. And it's really important for us as followers of Jesus, those that have given their life to Jesus, because ultimately what we see in this text is that the Holy Spirit, because he indwells in us, this is going to happen in and through us to the world. So it's important that we understand how it is. It's probably best used in this context, in the religious context, to understand that this is to bring someone to an acknowledgement of guilt, to expose them, to convict them. That's probably the best way. It's 18 times it's used in the New Testament, this word. 18 different times in almost every instant has the verb um, showing someone his sin, usually as a summons to repentance. So it's almost always used in that way. And so I think convict the way that we understand it makes sense. But, but it's a little bit more than that because it's not just to convict, but it's also to expose and show them what this conviction should cause to do. And so that's really what it's coming. One scholar says it this way. He says, the meaning then is as follows. Just as Jesus forced a division in the world by showing that what it does is evil, so the Holy Spirit continues this work. Indeed, he most commonly does so through the witness of disciples. He always does so in connection with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, since his whole purpose is to bring glory to him. By his departure, his death exaltation, Jesus fulfills the condition that must be met before he can send the Holy Spirit. And the gift of the Holy Spirit is so great that Jesus' departure must be seen for the disciples' good. When the Holy Spirit comes, he extends the ministry of Jesus in a way the disciples could not have foreseen. In particular, he convicts the world of its sin, its righteousness, and its judgment. So in, in, in 9 through 11, so he says he does these things, and then 9 through 11, he kind of explains how and why he's doing the conviction to each of these things. We see in verse 9, he says, concerning sin, because why? Because they do not believe in me. Now, it's, it's important that we see this. This isn't a, like, because they sinned yesterday or because they made a poor choice in this way. It's the sin of unbelief. Like, he's convicting because of their unbelief. He convicts the world because the people who constitute the world do not believe in Jesus. This has been John's whole goal. He did not hide this from the very beginning in the prologue all the way to the end. He says, this is what I'm trying to show people, that Jesus is God. Jesus is who he says he is, and I'm going to do everything I can to show you this. And the world does not believe that. Therefore, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of their unbelief. One scholar says it this way, as it is, their unbelief brings not only condemnation, but willful ignorance of their need. The Holy Spirit presses home the world's sin despite the world's unbelief. He convicts the world of sin because they do not believe in Jesus. The convicting work is therefore gracious. It is designed to bring men and women of the world to recognize their need and to, and to turn to Jesus and stop being the world. The Spirit does not merely accuse men of sin. 
He brings to them an inescapable sense of guilt so that they realize their shame and helplessness before God. That's not a small thing. The Spirit is convicting the world of sin. So then if, he is, if he's exposing and bringing to light and, and causing a desire to want to, um, to bring about guilt, he does so with righteousness. Now, this is a really interesting word because it's the only place in John where this specific Greek word is used. Um, but as we know with John, he tends to love to quote Isaiah. And Isaiah talks about, um, 64, 6, talks about how the righteousness of man are filthy, filthy rags. And so most likely what he's doing here is he's convicting the world of their, what they believe their seeming righteousness is, their righteous acts, the, the people that will hold the Sabbath but yet will cause others to struggle and, and would convict Jesus of healing a blind man on the Sabbath. Their righteousness is, is, is a belief that they have done something right before God, but actually they're, like we heard earlier two weeks ago in the scripture, they, they believe they're operating under God's authority, but they're actually not. And so what is he doing? The Holy Spirit convicts them of righteousness. And this is what's interesting. If you lay everything out that's happening all the way before this, this monologue that Jesus has, it's almost like it's been a trial for Jesus. And what seems to the world at this point is Jesus' death is the world believing that they won, that they were right, that they convicted Jesus of righteousness. And therefore, he hung on the cross the most unrighteous way to die. And so, so in essence, the, the world has convicted Jesus and said that he was unrighteous, but God says, no, no, Jesus says here, no, no, the Holy Spirit will convict you of, of righteousness. When you see that, why? Because he goes on and says, because I'm going to my Father. I'm going to God. If, if I was not righteous, I would not be going to God. But I will be with God, and the world will not be with God, and therefore, I am the true righteous one, and you are convicted of your hopelessly inadequate filthy rags of righteousness. The last one he says is, uh, the, verse 11 talks about um, judgment. And this one's interesting because he says here, he says, verse 11, he says, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Uh, this, is, this is speaking specifically to the father of lies, most likely, as we would call him, Satan. Um, the idea that the the prince of the world now stands condemned because Jesus has paid once and for all for the sinfulness of man by drawing people back to God in a right relationship through Jesus' work on the cross. And so, so how is he convicting them? Well, what he's saying is ultimately that, that the, the father of lies, he still has power, and we see this in the scriptures, we see this all over in the scriptures, that he's still operating, but he has been given the death blow, that, that Jesus has overcome the world through the cross. And so, so by convicting them, the world's judgment is profoundly wrong and morally perverse. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of its false judgment because they, they judged that Jesus needed to die and they thought they had established the right thing there because they believed it was righteousness. Ultimately, no, the triumph of Christ brings the prince of this world and everyone that follows the prince of this world condemned. So therefore, all false judgment is related to him who is a liar from the beginning, whose children are we if we share his values. The scholar says it this way. He says, the Holy Spirit is to expose the world and demonstrate its errors with reference to sin, righteousness, and judgment. Observe that this exposure is not primarily related to specific acts of sin, righteousness, and judgment, but as to what sin, righteousness, and judgment are. 
The context of this exposure is the proclamation of salvation that sets forth God's action in Jesus to which the Holy Spirit and the disciples bear witness before the world. And so the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of its sin, its unbelief, its, its, its false understanding of what righteousness is, its judgment, its condemnation, saying, like, look, the world cannot be judged. And so the Holy Spirit is doing that. Now, it's important for us to not forget that 14 talks about the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. And so this is a role that then plays into us, those that are the church, those that are God's children. We play this role. And then he goes on and describes a little bit more of what the Holy Spirit will do. In verse 13, we see this. It says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will not, he declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Verse 15, all that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declares it to you. We see a beautiful, beautiful example of the Trinity of both God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit working together here in a brilliant way. But it's important for us to see something here that the Holy Spirit does. First, he says he will lead us into all the truth. Um, this is the specific truth about the person of Jesus and the significance of what he said and did. Um, he says he brings up authority, the Holy Spirit's ministry. It's not that the Holy Spirit is, is in this like lower tier position, but it's the same way that Jesus spoke on the authority of God. Jesus modeled for us to, the idea of what it meant to be God, but yet not even compare himself equal to submit to God and to fall in his authority. And Jesus said, I did nothing on my own authority, but on the authority of God. The Holy Spirit is continuing that work to do nothing on his own authority, but the authority of God. In this setting, the authority of Jesus, which is the authority of God. This is them working together. Just as Jesus never spoke or acted on his own initiative, but said and did exactly what the Father gave him to say and do, so also the Spirit speaks only on what he hears. This also means something that I think is really important. This is where we get a little tricky in the church when we talk about the Holy Spirit. This means that the Holy Spirit is speaking. I just, I just think it's, we have to, we, you can't read that differently, like that the Holy Spirit isn't speaking. This means that he is speaking. Now, this is where it gets tricky because churches have gone to whole different denominations based on what the Spirit is speaking and how he's speaking and where we're going. But we, we see in this text that he is speaking. Uh, one scholar says it this way, it is essential that we see that the work of the Spirit of God is never divorced from Jesus Christ or the Word of God. He shall testify of me, that's John 15, 26. He shall glorify me, that's John 16, 14. People who claim that the Spirit of God led them to do things contrary to the example of Christ or the teaching of the Word are mistaken, are being led astray by Satan. Jesus is the truth, John 14, 6. And the Word is the truth, John 17, 17. And the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Where the Holy Spirit is at work, there must be truth that will be founded in Jesus Christ and in the Word of God. So that means that if, if the Spirit is leading you somewhere, it will have a very good common understanding and not go contrary to what God's Word says. It's vitally important that we see that. Now, 
Many people want to just go, okay, cool. Let's say that and let's just pretend that the Holy Spirit has nothing to say about, about my child specifically in this moment because I don't see a verse that talks about my child in this way specifically. No, the, the Spirit will guide you. But if that truth that he is guiding you is in any way distant or not connected to Jesus Christ and the teaching of Jesus Christ or the Word of God, you are not being led by the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is speaking. He is working. He is in place. He's doing um, what he says, but he's ultimately speaking on the authority of God. So that means when the Holy Spirit does speak, we don't ignore him. When he convicts you, granted, this is talking about conviction of unbelief, but when the Holy Spirit convicts you personally, those who follow Jesus of your sin, just because it's not a sin of unbelief doesn't mean we ignore it. We submit ourselves to him. And we, we walk in step. This is why all the scriptures talk about walking with the Spirit. Stay in step with the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. This is how you and I live our lives. And what Jesus is trying to comfort his disciples is saying, no, no, you keep coming to me not understanding, but guess what? He's going to come and he's going to reveal all things to you. All knowledge, everything you have is going to come from him. He's going to reveal it all to you. He's going to give you the wisdom that you need to live this life. He's going to show you the ways that you can go so that you know how to go so that you can honor God with every step of every single day. This is what the Spirit does. This is one of the things the Spirit does. All the while, and this is what we can't divorce from this section, all the while we got to recognize that what Jesus is trying to make a point in this section of the Holy Spirit, because there's so much more we can talk about, is that the Holy Spirit's function in this section is to convict the world. It's to, it's to help the world, those who are apart from God, recognize that they have no hope. They are, di- they are dead in their trespasses. They are lost without God. That is the point. And if the role of the Holy Spirit is accomplishing this work by indwelling us, leading us, and we're walking in step, then that means to stay on point to what we're talking about today, we mustn't allow ourselves to get rocked to sleep by the fake righteousness of the world. This means that we cannot lose sight of the world that we live in. If A, it's not home. This is not home. This is not where we belong. We belong in the kingdom of God. We are now in the world, but not of the world because we've been freed by Jesus Christ. And so that means that we shouldn't be shocked by the world trying to condemn us of our actions as we try to fulfill what God asks us to do and walk in step with the Spirit. This means that the things that we say won't be received by the world. When we say Jesus is the only way, people will call us narrow-minded, arrogant, pompous. This, this, this means that, that our lives, the way that we live our lives, hear this, please hear this, the way that we live our lives, if we're walking in step with the Spirit, regardless of what we say or do, will be in conflict with this world. Do you understand that? Not in a good, I can stand up and be a jerk and be pious or full of religion or arrogance. No, no, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about here. But just us living in step with the Spirit will cause people to be uncomfortable with the way we live our lives. People will, will say, well, why don't you spend more money on yourself? It's like, because it's not my money. People will say, well, why in the world would you give so much time to, to a a church. Well, it's because this is where God has me as my community. It's the outworking of it. I've been gifted in this community. Therefore, why would I sit on these gifts? When I, just, when I do what God asks of me, the, and, and everyone else does it, the manifold wisdom, the varied wisdom, the very colored wisdom of God is displayed to this world. We must see the world 
We must see the world or anything apart from God as what it truly is, evil, wrong, and not meant to be taken lightly. And that is really important. Now, when I say that, some of you are like, yeah, run from everything and go hide in a hole. That is not the Great Commission, okay? We don't run. That means that when we enter into the evilness that is this world, which is everything, guys, the politics, the education, your works, the money, everything is evil apart from God. Everything, when we enter into it, we choose to operate with it exactly how God would ask us to do, recognizing that none of it is meant to be idolized. None of it is our hope. None of it is our joy, but we are to live our lives in a way that, that shows people, not only in word, but also in deed, that we are not of this world. One scholar said it this way. Well, sorry, before that. The presupposition of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is a courageous belief in the spiritual, moral, and intellectual bankruptcy of the world. And one scholar says it this way. He says, the problem with most of us is that we have adapted to the world so successfully that we no longer tr truly believe that its systems of belief, life, uh, of belief, life, and thought are wrong. Like the proverbial frog slowly cooked in a warming pot of water, we don't realize our jeopardy till it is too late. It is not just that individuals have a propensity to sin, but that corruption is universal and unavoidable, and the whole systems of life have been built to sustain a darkness the world calls light to keep in place injustices that only the world calls fair. We need to be reminded that the sin of the world should stun us, but it doesn't. So what does that mean for us, the church, today? It means we are to be one voice that holds an honest assessment of the world, meaning we, we speak of the way it twists the meaning of sin and righteousness and judgment. We see things not correct. We see them just off slightly. They're not straight. And we, we don't say good enough. We say evil. Doesn't matter how close it looks. This is every other religion out there. No matter how good it sounds, no matter how nice people may seem, apart from Christ, you can do no good. The Holy Spirit is meant to live in us and walk in this way. So when we see it twisting sin and righteousness and judgment, that describes boldly its absence of justice and compassion and its failure to promote true virtue in the fear of God. This means that we live our lives in a way that will naturally convict the Holy Spirit of these things. People will be uncomfortable with this. People will choose to not like you because of this. People will, will, will judge you and condemn you. And this is what Jesus had just talked about. It's gonna get hard. He already told him that. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But if the Holy Spirit is in step with us, if we are in step with the Holy Spirit, then our actions, our words, the way we live our lives will convict, will expose the darkness in those around us and people will squirm. They will be uncomfortable with it. Family members will struggle with it. When we think of the Holy Spirit, it's important that we see this aspect of him. So often we love the idea of the Holy Spirit and, and the giftings and we love, to, we love to see him work in miraculous ways, but, but when it comes to this idea of him convicting the world, we, we try to ignore this because that seems harsh and difficult to, to swallow, but it's the truth of God's word. This is one of the primary roles that the Holy Spirit is going to do, and this is what Jesus is telling him. And this is, think about it this way. They don't understand it at this moment, but the Holy Spirit helps them connect the dots after Jesus' resurrection. But 
by all intents and purposes, if we just take the, the paraclete here and we just use the word advocate or, or we use it legally here, it looks like he lost. It looks like God lost in Jesus. He's beaten, he's, he's scorned, he's left all alone, and he's, he's crucified on a cross. The world is celebrating, we won, until Jesus comes out and says, JK, I'm alive. So then the Holy Spirit now continues his dissertation, his, his communication on what is really happening in this legal battle. And he shows the world that, that they, they not only lost, but they never had a chance apart from God. If the church, uh, one scholar says, the church talks about the Holy Spirit only in terms of emotional healing, it may bring or the praise and worship it may generate, the church has missed part of the Spirit's work. Charismatic gifts, healings, and signs and wonders are only part of the Spirit's mission. The Spirit is also engaged in the prosecution of the world. The Spirit is likewise about battle and struggle and winning so that the kingdom of God described by Jesus will begin to emerge like a mustard seed whose shrub stands visibly on the landscape. Matthew 13, 31 through 32. We are the embodiment of Jesus and we are to live in such a way that the world sees both their guilt and then sees also the value of living with Jesus. This is Acts 2. This is what happens. Peter gets up and, and you know, tells him, like, you murdered him. You did all this. Like, he gets up with, like, boldness. She can't wait to talk about Peter in a couple of weeks. But he gets up with boldness and says, this is what you guys did. And you did this. And you did this. You did this. And thousands of people come to faith. And then they just start, it just starts going crazy. What happens? We see in, in Acts 2, the, the um, uh, 44 through 47 says, and all who believed were together. And had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people, with all the people. And the Lord added what to their, their number day by day, those who were being saved. You see, see what's happening? God has given us the Great Commission. We see that. He's commanded us to go and make disciples. He said, I'll be with you, and this is how He's with us, through the Holy Spirit. And when we live in step with the Spirit, when we, when we do the things, and I'm not saying all of you need to go sell all your stuff, although let me just say this really clearly. The Spirit might be leading you to do so. I'm not going to get in the way of that. If He's asking you to be ridiculously generous to a mission or to something because He feels like you've broken your heart for it, don't run from that. Lean into it. Don't worry about your future. He carries your future. The, he, he, doesn't know, he knows every sparrow that falls from the sky. But the way that they were living their life not only convicted the world of we are lost, but also showed them what it can be like in, in the kingdom of God. And that's the brilliance of us living life together. All of 17 goes on this whole rant of what oneness and togetherness looks like. And the brilliance in this is that when we live together the way that God has commanded us to, when we, when we bear one another's burdens, when we let our giftings that aren't ours, they're not, we don't own them, they're the Holy Spirit's choice and how He outworks them in us. When we do those things, then people will start seeing something different in the community of God, and they will say, no matter what the world promises, I want that. I want that. That makes a difference. The Holy Spirit is the one that saves and opens the heart of individuals but God has graciously given us the opportunity to have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and be a vessel with which we can carry out the truth of Jesus to this dark, dark world. One scholar said it this way, and then we'll end. I love how he said it. He says, when a lost sinner is truly under conviction, 
He will see the folly and evil of unbelief. He will confess that he does not measure up to the righteousness of Christ, and he will realize that he is under condemnation because he belongs to the world and the devil. That's Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. The only person who can rescue him from such a horrible situation is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There can be no conversion without conviction, and there can be no conviction apart from the Spirit of God using the Word of God and the witness of the children of God. We have a part in this, guys. We get, to, we get to play this out. Now, this is why I started it, with the idea of our view of the world. If we view the world as, okay, fairly good, mostly good, it's not going to give us much excitement to really live and let the Spirit convict. And if, if the Spirit isn't going to convict, then there's no real surrender to Jesus because who needs Jesus if I'm not convicted for what I'm doing is wrong? Do you see, do you see how this works? Like, our view of the world, we, we must not be lullabied to sleep on this world. That means, hear me on this, that means your families, your close friends, those you love dearly that profess not to follow Jesus are under condemnation, a part of an evil world that is full of lies, that doesn't understand righteousness, that is, is resting in the sin of unbelief and is judging others based on a, a false system. That means that we as children of God, have the opportunity to show those that we love, to let the Spirit show those that we love, to let the Spirit work in us in a way that those that are our family and our friends will be uncomfortably convicted in hopes that the Spirit will change their heart and they will surrender their life to Jesus. It's important that we see the world as it is. Right now, many of us see the world as a way to make ourselves as comfortable as possible, get the white picket fence, 2.5 kids, you know, like, let's just live this life out. Let's get the best amount of retirement we possibly can so that in this vapor of life, we can live really comfortably. That's, you're, you're, you're being lullabied to sleep on the world. You're, you're believing that comfort in the last 30 years of your life is what Jesus wants. That's not bad to save. Save. But do so recognizing that this world is not home and you don't want to be comfortable here. In fact, as a follower of Jesus, you'll never be comfortable here. You'll always feel out of place. We should be extremely focused on walking in step with the Holy Spirit so that our brothers and sisters who are not home yet may repent and turn to Jesus. That's what we should be doing. The band's gonna come up and we're gonna sing some more. If you are here today and um, God is convicting you of a sin or of the sin of unbelief, I would encourage you to go back to the prayer room and get prayer. We have very safe and healthy people that can pray with you through that. And if he is convicting you right now, my encouragement would be not to squirm out, not to justify it, not to excuse it away, not to make it small, because there is no small sin. It's all sin apart from God. And as children of God, we are meant to be people of grace and, and forgiveness, and we are to walk in repentance, and that means that we will make mistakes. But when we make mistakes, we don't sit in them and wallow in them and try to, to train them. You know, the, the Bible describes sin as, as, a, as a lion trying to devour us, and many of you right now are trying to train a lion that's trying to devour you to sit and stay still. That's not how it works. We need, to, we need to run, flee temptation, run, all out run the opposite direction towards God, the only one who can protect us and heal us from the brokenness that sin brings in our lives.
And if you're here today and you realize, man, I am that frog in that pot and I've been looking at the world and even though I thought it was straight up and down like C.S. Lewis would say it in his book, but it was actually just slightly off, um, man, I, like confess that. Confess that to your community. Ask for accountability. There's, there's strength when darkness is called to light. It loses its power over you. And, and su- surrender ourselves to one another. Submit to one another. Why? Because they're out of reverence, out of, out of reverential fear, awe of Jesus Christ. Let's do that as a community. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for um, reminding me. I thank you for reminding me this week just how um, complacent I had come with this world. God, I pray that we, as those that are here today, that, that believe in you, that have surrendered their life to you, that the Spirit is, is indwelling in God, I pray that we would, we would be less comfortable in this world. I pray that starting today, like the, the seat cushions on our cars and our homes won't feel as comfortable, and we won't look for a new car or a new couch to fix that, but instead we'd find where you're asking us to walk. We'd, 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 we'd see that our schedules are too comfortable for us. We'd see that... Um, We'd see that, that our finances are too comfortable for us. Whatever it is, God, we pray. We pray that you would just, you would make us uncomfortable when it comes to this world so that we would not allow the world to, to, to even come near us as we've been washed pure as white as snow. Let us walk in that, Lord. And I pray as the Spirit works in us, God, I pray that, that those that are family members that we think about, the friends, the coworkers, the classmates, the people that, that don't know you, they would be convicted and would repent, that your Spirit would open their hearts, they would repent and, de- and declare you as Lord of their life. And we would celebrate and we'd give thanks to you for the work you are doing in their lives. May we never cease, never tire of praying for the lost God. May we never cease in in doing your work. May we never look for a time when we can just not be a part of your kingdom, God. But instead, may we hunger and thirst for your righteousness in a way that we will only be satisfied knowing that we will only be satisfied when you come again and your kingdom is in full fruition. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God and love others.